Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's always great to be back with you guys. I just hope our time together just glorifies God. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we give thanks and praise for the awesome privilege of being able to gather in your name. It is a freedom that so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world do not have. I pray that we never take it for granted. Today, specifically, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada who are experiencing persecution and we never thought we'd see there. We pray that you'll continue to give faithful pastors like James Coates, Jacob Ramu, and Tim Stevens the grace and strength they need to shepherd their flock in the midst of the arrests, the threats of arrests, the seizure of their buildings, and the astronomical fines. We also pray for our service today. We pray that our worship is pleasing to you and that it glorifies you. We pray that you will use today's sermon to edify the saints and to bring those who are lost to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this name of your precious Son. Amen. According to a recent poll, the top ten things parents want for their children are to be happy, to be healthy, to have a stable family life, to be loved, to be kind, to have a job that they enjoy, to be respected, to find love, to find passion outside of work, and to have a good social life. There's nothing wrong about wanting those things for your children. In fact, it is good to want those things for your children. But Christian parents want something for their children that is much more important than all of those things combined. They want their children to be saved. They want their children to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But how many times have we seen a child raised in a Christian home make a profession of faith only to abandon it once they move out or go to college? His parents are heartbroken because they did everything they could to raise him in the faith. They had him in church whenever the doors were open and taught him Bible stories. They got excited when he made a profession of faith and announced to everyone that he just got saved. And everything seemed right for a while. Their son was not rebellious. He was active in the church's youth group. He had a ton of scripture memorized. And all the Sunday school teachers loved having him in their class. He wore a purity ring and said he wanted to be a pastor when he got older. Then he went to college and everything changed. He started doing and saying things that no one ever thought he would. He stopped on the church and openly rejected the faith. But what happened? How could he have rejected the faith that his parents raised him in? He seemed like the perfect young Christian when he left for college. He even went to a Christian college. What happened is the true nature of his heart revealed itself. It revealed that he never had a faith of his own. It revealed that the faith that everyone thought he had was really the faith of his parents. There are many things that a parent can do to help their children have a faith of their own while keeping in mind that salvation belongs to the Lord. This morning, we're going to briefly look at eight of them. Preach the gospel, not a generic profession. Disciple your children. Teach them that they they do not have to check their brain at the door. Watch out for legalism. Live out your faith. The importance of the local church. Protect the baptismal. And how to choose their friends wisely. 
First, preach the gospel, not a generic profession. In 2010, Ray Comfort published a book called God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. On the cover was a picture of Stephen being stoned. I guess it's true what they say, a picture does say a thousand words. In the book, Ray Comfort attacks the modern gospel message that promotes easy believism and promises that you can have your best life now if you come to Christ. It is a message that says all you have to do is repeat a prayer, then you can live however you want to. Unfortunately, this false gospel message of easy believism has infested and taken over far too many pulpits and living room couches. As a result, so many professing Christians are living a lie and think they are saved when they're not. The fruit of this teaching is also seen in the astronomical number of children who fall away from the faith once they move out of their parents' home and go to college. But did they really fall away? No. They were never saved in the first place. They were false converts. The only way to combat this ep- epidemic of false conversions is to preach the true gospel, a gospel that actually saves, a gospel that transforms lives. There is nothing that you can teach your children that is far more important than the gospel. But in order to teach it to your children, you must know how to clearly communicate it to them. It is best summarized in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. It states, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. But that is only a summary of the gospel. Your children need to understand that they are a sinner, and they have broken the Ten Commandments. And since they have broken God's law, he will pour out his wrath on them for an eternity in hell. But God has provided a way of escape for them. And that way of escape is through his son, Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity, he is fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life that they cannot live. And he never broke God's law, not even once. And he went to the cross as part of God's preordained plan to save his people from their sins. And on the cross, he substituted himself for all those who repent and believe. And we know that his sacrifice was accepted by God when Jesus rose from the dead three days later. And if they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, all of their sins are imputed or put on Jesus, and he pays the penalty for all of those sins. But that's not all. Jesus' perfect record of obedience to the law is imputed to them. It is as if they lived a perfect life. They have also been given a new heart that is no longer enslaved to sin. A new heart that loves God and desires to obey Him out of love and not obligation. That is the true gospel message. But once you start talking to your children about the gospel, 
Should you wait until they reach a certain age of maybe 12 years old? No. Start talking to them about the gospel when they're very young, using language they can understand. As they get older, you can go into more detail, but keep the gospel front and center in their life. Make sure that they, you do not fall into a false teaching that removes repentance from the gospel call. The true gospel includes both faith and repentance because there are two sides of the same coin. A true saving faith will always be accompanied by repentance. Jesus himself commanded us in Mark 1 verse 15 that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Teach your children that the true gospel is a call to die to yourself and to live for Christ. This is what Jesus Christ was talking about in Luke 9, verses 23 to 26, when he stated, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must also deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is the man who profited if he gains the whole world and loses it or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Teach an uncompromising gospel message to your children and avoid the temptation to water it down. By doing so, you may help your children have a faith of their own. Now let's move on to the second thing you can do. Disciple your children. One of the main go-to verses in many of the books and seminars on discipling your children is Proverbs 22.6. It states, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Teach your children all that God has commanded in his word. Teach them the Bible. But don't stop there. Teach your children how the Bible applies to their everyday life. If you do so, you're giving them something that will help guide them throughout their lives. Many parents do a great job teaching their children Bible facts, but fail to teach them how those truths apply to their life. As a result, the Bible often becomes a glorified version of Aesop's fables in the eyes of an unconverted teenager who grew up on a steady diet of Bible stories acted out by talking vegetables. When teaching the Bible to your children, be careful you do not take a heroes and villains approach to the Old Testament narratives where they are, become simple stories of people you should and should not imitate. When you do so, you reduce these stories to a man-centered, moralistic, and Christless mess. According to David Murray, this approach changes the focus of God's word from God to man. It tends to put man and his needs in the foreground with God and his glory in the background. However, this does not mean that you cannot use a biblical character as an example of someone who responded in a biblical or unbiblical way. The problem is when you stop there. Show them how the entire Bible points to Jesus. Teach your children theology. Do not shy away from using the big words such as propitiation, imputation, justification, sanctification. Teach them what those words mean and how they affect their lives. 
Because all theology is inherently practical. Many of life's problems are theological in nature, so the solution will be theological. Use the precious time that God has given you with his children to give them a firm foundation Bible knowledge, systematic theology, and practical theology. By doing so, you may help your children have a faith of their own. Now let's move on to the third thing you can do. Teach them that they do not need to check their brain at the door. As Christians, we believe some really unbelievable things. We believe that God created everything in six literal 24-hour days. We believe that Balaam's donkey talked. We believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and survived after being inside it for three days and three nights. Those sound like something you read in a fairy tale, but they're not. They all really happen. Unfortunately, many children who grow up in Christian homes are ill-equipped to defend the Christian faith. As a result, they believe they have to check their brain at the door of the church in order to hold on to their Christian faith. Once their faith gets challenged, they reject it and run into the arms of a secular worldview that claims it can debunk Christianity using science. However, real science only confirms what we already know, that every word in the Bible is true and can be defended. Parents, don't just teach your children the Christian faith. Teach them how to defend it. Teach them apologetics. Cornelius Van Til has defined apologetics as the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of non-Christian philosophies of life. But let's not overcomplicate it. In the words of Odie Bauckham, apologetics is simply knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to communicate it to others in a winsome and effective way. And the best way to defend the faith is a presuppositional approach where you never surrender the truth of the scriptures in order to find some mythical, neutral ground with an unbeliever. Teach your children that the goal of apologetics is not just to defend the faith. It is also to clear a path to the gospel. For no one is saved by a presentation of facts and evidences. But most of all, when you teach them apologetics, be careful that they do not lose focus on the first and most important step in defending their faith. Let's see if you catch it. You want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3? We're going to read verses 15 through 16. Starting in verse 15, the Apostle Peter stated, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Did you catch it? The first step in the apologetical argument is not learning all you can about carbon dating, starlight theory, and the transmission of biblical texts. It is for them to sanctify the Christ as Lord in their hearts. According to Jay Adams, to sanctify Christ in your heart is to set him apart from all other persons and allegiances. It is to remove all doubts from the heart at the same time avowing him as Lord. 
by your, teaching your children that they do not need to check their brains at the door, you may help them have a faith of their own. Now let's move on to the fourth thing you can do. Watch out for legalism. Legalism is the improper use of God's law. It can take several forms, including keeping the law to attain salvation, keeping the law to maintain salvation, and it uses man-made standards to judge other Christians. It is Christless, and it is man-centered. It rejects the freedom that we have in Christ and puts the Christian back into bondage. Legalism is often a one-way ticket to apostasy where a child thinks that they cannot lift up to a standard and gives up. Since there is no Christ in legalism, it often leads to children running as far from God as possible. We only have to look at the fruit of certain legalistic ministries and teachers such as Bill Gothard to see the devastating effects of legalism. But no parent ever sets out to be a legalist. But in their zeal to teach their children how to live a holy life, they often fall into legalism. Just like the Pharisees, they impose strict, man-made laws meant to keep their children from breaking God's law. Very quickly, the difference between God's law and Dad's roles become blurred. I am not saying that you shouldn't teach your children about the importance of setting up guideposts to help them stay on the narrow path or that you should not hold them to godly standards. You should teach them to set up guideposts and hold them to certain standards. But make sure you teach them the why behind those standards. What I am talking about are laws and rules that cloud the truth of verses, such as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9, through 9, that states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Romans 3, verse 28, that states, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. As a result of the strict rules without a biblical basis, children start to think that their salvation depends on the obedience to those rules. It happens when a parent imposes rules demanding that their daughter wear a certain length dress instead of teaching about modesty and how to help and how to make wise decisions. It happens when parents give their children a long list of TV shows they can and cannot watch instead of teaching them how to evaluate media choices biblically. I'm not saying that you should let your children wear whatever they want or watch whatever they want. What I'm saying is parents need to teach their children why there are certain roles and equip, equip them to make wise decisions. Teach your children that as Christians, we are obedient to God out of love for Him. Since we love Him, we also desire to avoid the things that He hates. By doing so, parents will avoid legalism and may help their children have a faith of their own. Now let's move on to the fifth thing you can do. Live out your faith. Parents, your children are watching you. They're watching how you respond to different situations. They're listening to how you talk about other people. They're watching your life closely, and you are an example for them. Good or bad, you are an example for them. So let me ask you a question. Is your life an example of what a Christian's life should look like? 
In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, the Apostle Paul stated, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Can you say the same? Are you living out where you preach to your children? Or where they look at you and think hypocrite? Dustin Binge has rightly pointed out that many parents who desire their children to love Scripture, to pray, to be humble, to be modest and righteous, are often poor examples of these qualities. Do not expect your children to be what you do not model for them. As a parent, you are not perfect, and you will sometimes fail to meet the standards that you're trying to hold your children to. But that is precisely the point. You are still a sinner. But what matters is how you respond when you sin. When you sin in front of your children, repent of it in front of them. If they saw the sin, they need to see the repentance. If you sin against your children, repent to them and ask their forgiveness. Repenting to your children does not undermine your authority. It shows them that you are a sinner saved by grace and that you need grace every minute of every day, just like they do. It shows them that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It shows them that you are not a hypocrite since you acknowledge that you're a sinner just like they are. And when you do sin, you run to the arms of a merciful God just like you instruct them to do. Parents who are striving to live a holy life and are quick to repent are living lives that should be imitated. It is important that your children see you reading your Bible. It is important that your children see you praying. It is important that your children see you serving in the church. By living out your faith in front of your children, you may help them have a faith of their own. Let's move on to the sixth thing you can do. Teach them the importance of the local church. Ecclesiology, or the study of the church, is one of the most misunderstood and neglected doctrines. So many children do not have a biblical understanding of the church and think it's just a building they can go to on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings. So what is the church? According to Wayne Mack, the church, as defined by the Word of God, is a group of Christians who dedicate themselves to meeting together for the regular preaching of the Word of God, who submit themselves to biblical eldership, who regularly celebrate the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and who practice and submit themselves to church discipline as laid out in Scripture. The church should be a central point in in a Christian family's life. The people in your church are members of your extended family. They are people that you laugh with. They are people that you cry with. They are people that you do life with. Teach your children that the attendance in corporate worship is not an option for the Christian. In fact, the fourth commandment commands us to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Also, we're told in Hebrews 10, 23-25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is a habit for some, but encouraging one another and, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sadly, many parents unintentionally teach their children that attending corporate worship 
is not as important as other activities. They teach them that football and other sports are more important than going to the Lord's Day worship service. That trophy they earned in the competition instead of being in church is a great testament of who their God really is. The church service basically becomes something to do on Sunday morning when you have nothing better to do. If you don't take your church attendance seriously, how do you expect your children to do so when they're older? But in some cases, when children grow up, they continue to attend church, but not the one they grew up in. These kids are not always fleeing the church that has smoke machines during worship or are more hip and relevant. Sometimes they're leaving the church they grew up in for another solid church in the area. The reason they left is because they see the church as their parents' church and not theirs. They don't feel like they belong since they were never incorporated into the life of the church. Get your children involved in the church at an early age. Find ways for them to serve. The more involved they are, the more connected they were filled, and they're not seen as their parents' church, they were seen as their own. By teaching your children the importance of the local church, you may help them have a faith of their own. Now let's move on to the seventh thing you can do. Protect the baptismal and the Lord's table. Cradle baptism, or believer's baptism, is one of the most defining things that makes a person a Baptist. According to chapter 29, paragraph 1 of the 689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. The command to be baptized is also the first command given to new believers. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 states, Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, the sacred ordinance of baptism is taken so lightly in many Baptist circles that it has almost become a joke. Some parents rush their children to the baptismal as soon as they make even the most generic profession of faith. It is almost like they're trying to seal the deal by having a child get baptized. Some professing Christians get rebaptized every time they rededicate their lives to Christ. It's almost like they're collecting baptismal certificates like someone collects baseball cards. But worse yet, some Baptists have turned baptism into something you would see at an amusement park. In order to make baptism more kid-friendly, they have baptismals that look like fire engines. And some churches even shoot off confetti cannons every time they baptize a child. With all that said, parents have an uphill battle when it comes to baptism. Not only do they have to teach the children about its importance in an environment where it's taken so lightly, they also have to determine if their child who made a profession should be baptized. This is especially tough since baptism should only be done once. How young is too young? How much time should there be between your child's profession and their baptism? Is my child's profession credible? Parents have to struggle with those questions and many more. But fortunately, parents do not need to make those decisions on their own. 
have your pastor and elders make the final determination on if your child should be baptized. They are the spiritual authority that God has placed over your family, and they are the people that God has appointed to administer that ordinance. If they decide your child is not ready, humbly submit to their decision. They're doing what they think is best for your child and what they think will glorify God the most. Now let's move on to the eighth thing you can do. Teach them to choose their friends wisely. Parents, it is important to understand that once your child becomes teenagers, their friends are often a bigger influence in their lives than you are. The Bible is full of warnings about the influence of friends. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.33 states, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20 states, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That is why it is important that you teach them to choose their friends wisely. If your child is a believer... A good friend will encourage and help build him up in the faith. A good friend will point out sin in his life and call him to repentance. A good friend will tell your child what he needs to hear, not what he wants to hear. A good friend will carry your child's burdens for him. If your child is not a believer, a good Christian friend can be a good example to him and witness to him. However, a bad friend can have the exact opposite effects. They can tempt your child to sin and introduce him to ungodly things. A bad friend will tear down your child's faith and lead him astray. A bad friend can feed into your child's pride and encourage him to rebel against the God-giving authorities in his life. A bad friend will tell your child what he wants to hear, not what he needs to hear. But this leads to a very important question. If your child is a believer... Can they have friends and hang out with unbelievers? The answer is yes. Yes, they can. However, I would suggest that his best friend and the friends that he spends the most time with should be believers. This is the same advice that the Puritan Thomas Brooks gave when he said, Let those be thy choicest companions who have made Christ their chief companion. Most of all, teach your children that their best friend and closest friend will always be Jesus Christ. Unlike our earthly friends, he will never hurt them. He will never betray them. He will always be there for them. He will always love them. By teaching, teaching your children to choose their friends wisely, you may help them have a faith of their own. In closing, I need to remind you that you cannot be your child's Holy Spirit. You cannot save them, but you can point them to Christ. You can love them, You can pray for them. You can teach them God's word. But at the end of the day, you must trust in a sovereign God to to do what is right and just in the life of your child. Let's close in prayer uh, with a prayer from the book, Piercing Heaven. Lord, may your answer to our united prayers with peace. Pour out your spirit on our families and your blessing on our children that they may grow up before you as a willow trees by the river, that they may be a comfort to their parents and a support to the church, and a name and a praise to you. Amen.